0: Three, two, one. Hello, 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 my friends. Wow, I have missed you. Welcome back to Podcast Noor. So Podcast Noor is our storytelling interview series that we do in between our investigations. And our last investigative podcast, which, side note, was nominated for a Webby, is titled Rep a story about the stories we tell. And if you're familiar with me or my work, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it ad nauseum, but if you haven't listened to it, um, please, please do. It really is the journey of a lifetime. It's an investigation into the concept of truth, objectivity, representation, and our relationships with stories. And if you have listened to Rep, then this opening episode of this season of Podcast Nood is actually going to be such a tremendous and beautiful treat. So today's storyteller is someone who I believe is one of the most prolific storytellers of our time. Hisham Matar is a Libyan-American author and professor. His award-winning novels include In the Country of Men, Anatomy of Disappearance, and most recently, A Month in Sina. And in between writing novels, he wrote a memoir titled The Return, Fathers, Sons, and the Land in Between. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning memoir. And the first time I heard about the memoir was actually on President Obama's summer reading list. And I remember seeing that it was a Libyan author and being like, whoa, I i've never actually read a book by a libyan person and so i got really excited life happened and then i really believe in like the divine timing of reading a book and i had shared it with my brother and my family members and i hadn't even started it myself and my brother started the book and he texted me and was like have you read it yet and i hadn't and he said I feel like you guys are like keys to each other's stories. And there isn't two people that I could think of that need to meet more than you and Hisham. That's literally what my little brother said to me. And I was like, whoa, okay. He's never said anything like that. I need to really take this seriously. But I also felt it. And so the story of Hisham, Matar in his memoir is that he is on this quest to find his father who disappears when he's 18 years old at the hands of the Gaddafi regime. And this is a, of course, I'm saying it's a memoir. It's a true story. And it is one of the most important books that I have ever read. And not just because, you know, I'm also Libyan or I have a family member who's also been missing at the hands of the regime for decades, but it truly is this journey that interrogates what it means to have or not have a father or to keep someone's essence alive in many ways. And I love that in the title, he, he writes fathers, sons, and the land in between. Because how many of us have had you know, contentious relationships with our fathers or a parent of ours or whatever that may look like and mean. I just, I cannot recommend this book enough. And and the way that this book moved me, I read it in two days, guys. Like I cried every chapter I would read and I'd have to put it down. And it wasn't just like crying out of pain of what I was reading. The writing is just so, it was, Hisham literally put to words feelings that I had had that I didn't know existed. And So I wanted to start this season out with our conversation that we have because it meant so much to me, um, especially off the heels of Rep where I feel like Rep has really broken me open and I'm asking so many questions about who I am in a a way that I never knew I could. And so I just have such gratitude for Hisham and I, I I urge you to read his memoir The return. And if you're a fiction enthusiast, then his novels. He actually gifted me uh, his latest novel, A Month in Sina, on our way out of the interview. And I'm so excited to dig into it. So we recorded this interview in his office at Barnard College. And it was a transformative conversation. I even invited my little brother to the conversation so that he could be there to witness our connection and just this kind of reunion that all of us had, even though we didn't know each other personally, you know, you just, sometimes you meet people and you're like, oh, we do know each other. So it was kind of like that. Hisham reflected a lot on a question that I had asked him. he texted me after the interview the next day and, and said that he had more he wanted to share. He had been thinking about it. So it was such a treat that we have an addition to the interview at the end of the episode. So make sure you stick around. And without further ado, I would love to welcome you to our first storytelling session of the season with Hisham Matar on what it really means to move on. I've just thought about sitting down with you for like constantly for the last few days. And I think most times I think about it, I kind of just... Burst into tears, so this is a very unusual interview for me. That's, a sort, of,
1: that's sort of the effect I have. On people. Yeah, I know.
0: I get that. Before I ask you anything, or before I say anything, I just want to start off with with gratitude and like just deep, sincere gratitude. And I know that you know many people have spoken to you and, and shared with you how your words have affected them. And I, I want us four in this room to be four more people who share that sentiment but more importantly and more importantly not but the thing that my brother had said to me when he texted me about the urgency to read the return was he said i think that he has a key to the puzzle that you're trying to figure out and that maybe i would have one for you too and not in the most literal sense of answers of what's happened to our respective families but like proof maybe, or hope of why we do what we do. And, you know, I think when you're a writer or a storyteller, once the story is out there, it kind of no longer belongs to you. Everybody has their own relationship with it, or anybody who encounters it has their own experience with it. And in that way, you know, the stories are always bigger than us but I just wanna say thank you for writing words, expressing feelings and giving context to experiences that have surrounded me my entire life that I've never been able to grasp or that even in my own family, people have never been able to articulate. And I was, I was talking to my dad on FaceTime yesterday about this. And I was just telling him, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this interview. I don't know how I'm going to do this conversation. And he said, you know, it's very clear that Hisham has the gift of words and that that gift is one that you've passed down to so many of us. And it's, it's not a gift that is taken lightly. It's one that gives all of us context to the puzzle of our life. And as somebody who believes in asking questions without the intention of finding answers, I think in many ways, the questions that you have, have given us, um, maybe led us to asking more questions, but those questions sometimes felt stronger than an actual answer because they gave me personally the capacity to imagine, to think about, to humanize uh, people and experiences that have often just been names and numbers in my brain. So with that, I just really want to start by saying thank you.
1: I'm very touched. Thank you so much. (sighs) Okay. And also greetings to you and to your brother (laughs) and to your father.
0: Thank you. Mm. So the way we always start out these conversations is by doing a heart check-in. So I first want to ask you today... How is your heart doing?
1: My heart? I think it's doing all right. (laughs) Um, And of course, you mean it metaphorically. um, My heart? That's a very difficult question to answer briefly because my heart is connected uh, to my concerns. Mm. Uh, It's the place... um, that has my concerns and also my passions. So my concerns these days are, um, you know, beyond the personal uh, terrain. Um, you know, I obviously have the concerns that we all share about the world. I feel that we are in a in a tricky moment. Um, um, we have some really serious problems in front of us. And so I think about those, you know, Um, and, but also my passions, my passions are to do with my engagements with nature, with the people that I love and with works of art. You know, I feel that art for me is not this extra thing. It's not, doesn't reside in the place that I think our society has, um, delegated for it you know yeah. some extra thing some entertainment uh, art for me is fundamental it's central to any project to do with with humanity with a sense of any sense of progress I think yeah. you have to start with you know you cannot have a city without a theater or a library uh, or a mm-hmm. museum those are the first things Parliament courthouse library museum <laughs> that's how you start. And so, um, and so, my my relationship, my engagement with art, whether as a writer or as a as a as a teacher, or or in my own personal life, you know, is very central to me. Mm. Um, so the paintings that I'm looking at, the pieces of music that I'm listening to, the books that I'm reading, it's it's a very serious engagement, and it feeds me in so many ways. Some are intellectual, and some are just purely emotional. Mm. So. So my heart is 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 a place that that has in it concerns private and general, but it's also I must say it's also a place of of joy you know and of of uh, of praise you know in the much in in the widest sense you know at least I try you know
0: mm.
1: and I'm also interested in um in a very personal way. I'm interested in housekeeping <laughs> my heart, you know. Tidying it up you know milk. what does that look like? I'm not sure, but it's something to do with a sense of quiet or a sense of um, a sense of um, compassion maybe. Uh, my heart can very easily get cluttered uh, mm-hmm. with uh, fear or or mm, I'm upset about something or so housekeeping in that sense, like reminding your heart all the time of its uh, boundless terrain, the fact that it is really connected yeah. to others. I'm, this is why I go to art, because I'm, I'm very interested, even though I've written a lot about my personal experience and I'm interested in the specific, mm-hmm. literature cannot work without the sp- specific, in the person, they do this, they move, they say that, everything's very specific. Yet my real passion, my real enthusiasm, is not actually for myself. Um, my real enthusiasm is the ways in which I can use myself, my experiences, my as limited as they are, uh, to connect to this broader terrain. You know, this incredible event of being a human being. Mm. You know that we are we are born in the aftermath of events that have preceded us and have authored a lot of what's around us but we're also uh, born into a very complex inheritance you know mm. an inheritance that means that we have you know a cause to be ashamed genuinely ashamed and um, and we also have cause to be incredibly proud uh, we have a, an inheritance that that breaks the heart, you know? Mm-hmm. And but we also have an inheritance that mends it and enlivens it and, and dignifies us. And, and so I'm interested in the complexity of that inheritance. I don't want to... I feel that any register to resolve it into an absolute verdict that we are terrible and worthy of shame, or that we are some sort of noble thing and only worthy of praise, uh, uh, unsatisfying, uh, you know those two verdicts to be. Heard. I'm much more interested in how one can sustain, think about, hold these contradictions, and use them as um, a means to 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 enliven um, the lived experience and thought and feeling. That's where art, for me, becomes so f- uh, so central because art, at its best, is a host. Of these conflicts, you know, and and it's such a concentrated place, you know, somebody has spent a lifetime learning something and has invested so much, at least I'm thinking of the great paintings or books, you know, that so much is contained in them. Um, And often it's complex, you know. So this is a very long way to say that my heart is a place of contradictions, you know, it's a place where I... Where I rejoice, but also where I am—I am burdened with, with with grief, with concern, with um, you know, with very genuine concern uh, about uh, this this moment. You know, yeah.
0: I love that when reflecting on your heart, you go straight to art. As like a almost a mirror or a a reflection, an ability to see more clearly maybe the contradictions that typically exist inside of us, but um, people have been able to make make that contradiction uh, appear on canvas or appear on the page. And I know you have this beautiful tradition or habit, whatever you want to call it, of consistently going to museums and sometimes spending weeks or years looking at just one piece (laughs) of art or the same painting over and over. So I would love- You're very
1: kind to call it tradition. It's more like a tick or a disease. But I love it.
0: (laughs) But I mean, I I wish it for more of us because even the way that you talk about how you no longer could do that habit of just walking through a museum like for within an hour of just like looking at every painting but just becoming immersed in it i mean to me i i started painting a couple of years ago at, simply because like it was the only way i could get things out like mm. when i was working on rep mm. and it started with that first episode oh, really? is yeah. when i started painting and i was like i there's something that needs to come out and mm. i feel like this is the only way that it can make sense for me and i and the fact that you know you are someone who spends years maybe even looking at the same painting for however many times and you're essentially building a relationship with that piece of art i would love to know in this moment in your life what is the painting that you're building a relationship with or the piece of literature that you're building a relationship with i would love to tell with. you about that
1: but yeah. but before i do I, i'm curious when you said I started painting because it's the only way that I can I think you said get things out or yeah. express things. Yeah. And what have you found? What 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 has come out uh, in the paintings that isn't it, it wasn't possible for it to come out in any other way?
0: Well, I'll have to show mm. you after mm. this too mm. so that I can explain. But I think for me it's funny as I was growing up I there was this line I started speaking at a very young age, like public speaking. And there was this line I used to always say, just as a joke, where I would say, I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't good at art, but I knew I was really good at asking questions. And so I think I had it in my head for so long that like, I wasn't good at art and art was something you needed to be good at. And um, then when I was working on rep, I had gone through a box that my mom had kept of all of my old paintings and drawings from like elementary school. There was this one, uh, there was like a couple of abstract pieces and there was this one that was a magnet actually that I was so happy that she, she had it because I had remembered painting it or drawing it. And it was like this magical bird with, and behind the bird was a waterfall and a cave. And I started crying when I saw that I I did it in 2003 actually. So exactly 20 years ago and i remember as a child when i was uh when i drew it in my art class i remember i i was drawing something i kept seeing in my head and when i had found rediscovered this uh drawing this magnet which now resides on my fridge i realized that's where i live now i live on the land that i live on has like this little enclave and waterfalls. And I this just this morning I jumped into the the water. I jump in every morning
1: because okay, it's very cold. Us. I, I promise
0: that's what I'm telling you, you have to come right at the cabin. <laughs> so and I was in the cabin and I had found this and I just started crying because at, at 10 years old, I had drawn the place that I live on now, the land that I live on, as if, as if it was in me the whole time. And so after I had found that and I'd gone through some other drawings and paintings, I decided that I was going to just try it again and see what happened. And at the time, a couple of my teammates had actually gifted me uh, this entire paint set. It was like a, it was canvases and beautiful paints. And I just kind of left it aside and thought, you know, what am I going to do with this? And I decided to break it open and in the cabin, I started painting. But instead of trying to paint something, words kept coming out. And so I started painting words and and the art of painting words became so profound to me because I was forced to take my time with what I was writing. and so or what I was painting essentially. And so every every stroke of a letter that I was painting, it felt like this really like this stream or like this download that I was getting. And so I started just, it almost kind of became poetry where all these words were coming out in this like flow and it became a hack that I figured out. So when I was stuck, most of rep was actually written up in the cabin. I'm very much like I write on yellow legal pads, like try to be off my computer as much as I can. And I would literally write the questions I was investigating onto a canvas and then the answers would follow. And that's what I kept finding over and over again. And then I found a palette knife and I just started going crazy with abstract. And so I kind of mixed that with the words and have found a lot of answers since then.
1: So the painting that I'm looking at. Yes. um, I'm looking at, um, well, I mean, just to say about my tick, uh, about the um returning to the same painting every week um i don't really stand in front of it for a very long time it's usually about 20 minutes or so
0: that's a long time to most but people though
1: <laughs> it is a bit of a long time but not, you know and and then i look at a couple of other pictures and that's it you know i don't um but i just um f- i find the companionship of a work of art interesting um I, um, I'm not enthusiastic uh, by um, attempts to approach a work of art transactionally, you know? Like I'm gonna go look at you, and you're gonna make me feel good. Or I'm gonna look at you, and then you're gonna teach me something about the specific thing. I'm not enthused by that register. I am much more uh, excited by um, engaging my curiosities about it, my questions. So the painting becomes a lively location for me where I go and feel and think. I'm not entirely always clear what I'm going to get. And that's exactly what I'm excited by, that I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. A bit like certain kinds of conversations, like you know that there are certain people you sort of know, you might enjoy very much, their, 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 uh, their company, but you have a sort of sense of the repertoire of things that they're going to talk about, you know, depending on the mood they'll be in, right? And there's another kind of very rare conversation, at least in my life, extremely rare, where you really don't know what you're going to get, but whatever you're going to get is going to be very interesting, right? And great works of art usually do that to me. So I'm engaged in this conversation. And, and then when I exhaust it or it exhausts me or I basically get bored, I move on to the next thing. And that usually takes a while for me. It takes quite a long Depends. You Can know.
0: you like walk me through the process, like you're engaging with, and maybe with, this is with the part, the piece that you're looking at right now? But like, what's your first layer? What's your second? What's your third? Like, how are you getting deeper and deeper and deeper every time you engage?
1: Hard to account for in that way. But um, say right now, for example, I'm looking at this painting by Goya, called "The Forge." Uh, it's at the Frick, here in in New York. It's it's a very unusual painting because it's very large. And usually paintings then, if you're going to do an oil painting that large, it's usually somebody really important Mm -hmm. because they've paid for it. It's quite expensive to paint a painting that big. And Goya is very interesting because he exists at that cusp where the patron was still the dominant motivator, a facilitator. But there was also a register where you could sort of do your own thing, right? That you're not painting for somebody uh, or for a commission. And he did a lot of drawings that way, many. But there are very few paintings of that that size that I know of, at least, that were not commissioned, and it's and so the subject is very uh, humble. It's it's these three smiths who are around a forge, around a flame, and hammering at something. But they're mid hammering, so the hammer is up in the air, and you look at it narratively like that. Everything I've said about it now is the least interesting thing about it, right? What's really interesting is the way that he creates of a painting a kind of energy of motion. These three figures seem to be involved in some physical uh, momentum that you're not entirely sure whether they're, they're even in control of. Like, you don't know where is the hammer exactly going to fall? Is it going to fall in the right place? And so, so you feel that he's created, he's done something quite amazing, Uh, for a painting to do you know he's created a kind of a dance of some sort Mm. a very slightly unsettling one but and so I'm writing about it and so I don't always write about the paintings I'm looking at but um, but this one I know I want to write about so why? because I've been asked to on some level I mean it's, it's a painting I've always been interested in but somebody said would you the Frick said would you write about it? And I said, I'd love to write about it. And so I've been, well, no, actually the Frick said, would you choose a painting in our collection or write about it? And I thought, that's the one I want to write about. Because I've had a question mark over it for a long time. Um, I'm not really sure how it works. I'm intrigued by it. I'm led to it by questions. Um, very much like uh, the books that I teach, I teach the books that I haven't quite resolved yet, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that I want to think about more deeply. I initially, when I when I first started teaching uh, 12 years ago, I thought, you teach the thing that you know best and you have all your opinions are set on it. And I did that once and it was terrible. <laughs> it was just The class just, you know, they just sat there and listened, received. There was no Nothing dynamic right. there. So I learned the hard way <laughs> that you should actually teach the thing that you are deeply fascinated by, but um, but have questions about. And so so I'm looking at The Forge, and the book that I'm reading right now, rereading for the upteenth time, and I'm teaching it, is um, is, a, is a book that frightens a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I'm a bit of an advocate for it because I want to encourage people to read it. <laughs> And uh, it frightens them because it's very long. Um, it's Proust, Marcel Proust, French novelist. Um, and he's really only written one work. And it's made up of seven volumes. And it's called In Search of Lost Time. Um, I teach only the first volume because there isn't time to teach all the others. But it's just incredible. You know, I've been reading this book for a very long time. The first time I read it, I think I was in my mid 20s. And I still, it still takes my breath away. I still can't quite, I don't know how he did it. You know, I it shimmers and moves in ways that are very difficult to account for. Um, so teaching it is a joy because I, you know, I get the pleasure of being in conference with, you know, young, smart readers uh, thinking about this this magnificent sort of object, you know. So... So yeah, that's so. So things, I suppose, the the short answer for why what happens with a painting when I'm looking at it over a long period of time is I feel a deepening acquaintanceship with it. You mm-hmm. know, I feel I get to know more to it uh, about it. It's a bit maybe, an, another analogy is like editing, right? When you're editing a work, um, you're admitting secretly that uh, you are never in one instant as intelligent as your book. Hmm. That the book is an accumulation of insights over a long period of time. In my case, it takes me, you know, three, four years to write a book. And in that time, all of these accumulations add up. And so the book will always be smarter, will always be, you know, better than me. Always, right? And uh, this engagement with a painting the things that I accumulate over that time cannot be done in one, for me at least, mm-hmm. maybe for some people they can. But for me, I can't do it in one, one, you know, uh, or even a month. I need quite a long period of time to accumulate those things. And also it, it feels like um, it, companionship is really the word. I feel that The Forge, I've been now looking at it for Two and a half years <laughs> and the forge is is not oh, the whole time because I only live in New York for four months of the year so in those four months I've been looking at it and um, in, in and the forge has been with me you know it's with me as I'm looking at other paintings, reading other books with friends. In my moments of quiet, you know, it's in some, in some aspects of it, of course, not all the time. Thankfully, not all the time, <laughs> with me, you know. So, well, and that companionship is is enriching. It's it's uh, it, it um, it's enjoyable.
0: I love that that companionship that you are able to not only engage in, but articulate what a relationship looks like with a piece of art or something, or just the affirmation that. Life exists in the stillness too. I would love to know what question you're asking yourself these days in this moment in time as you're engaging with these pieces. I don't know
1: if there's one singular question. I mean there, there's there's a set of questions.
0: <laughs> well, you're really good at asking questions but, too, so I would yeah. <laughs> love to hear them.
1: I mean, there are a set of questions and they're very intimate to the work, you know because I'm working. I've just closed the book. And, um, and, uh, and I'm sort of at those very last moments, you know, where I'm, I'm just looking at the final proofs. And, uh, and something interesting happens when, for me at least, when a book is finished, because you have a... Um, the journey is a bit like this, at least for me. The beginning is like a love affair. You're very excited. You feel like you've, you really feel. That the idea of the book, the first lines, the first 20 pages, or you really feel that somebody has gifted them to you, that they don't really belong to you. Mm. And you feel so excited and enlivened. And then you get deeper and deeper and deeper. Ibn Arabi is, I think, uh, whatever, is it 13? How many stages of love that he does? He does this meditation on different stages of love. It's a beautiful text you know he uses the arabic words the many arabic words that describe love and he uses them to describe the different stages one of the early ones is al-lahib which is you know the word comes from flame so he says that's the early stage because the lovers need to be welded you know <laughs> they need to be they need to be welded together and um, one of the very later stages is al-ishq which comes from the words to describe how a plant passes through the trellising, right? So it's something to do with intertwining and becoming part of the same structure. Um, And those stages, both in love, (laughs) perhaps, but certainly in a work, can feel, the stage of al-ishq can feel, um, Anxious making because you think, oh, I'm really now, I'm really bound up here. And <laughs> you know, I'm really, I'm really here now. And I feel that with the work, when you come to the midsection of it, and you think, okay, I still don't I haven't resolved everything. And I'm in now. In my case, that usually takes about a year to get to that stage. And um and I'm not even certain that the things that I know it wants from me I can supply. Right. Um, in fact, usually every book I've written, it's never been obvious to me that I could pull it off, and that's somehow part of the enterprise because I need to to be challenged in that way. I need if I knew I could do it, I won't. It won't be as exciting somehow. So,
0: but how do you get over that bridge? Like, how do you get over that? Like in your head, you have the idea. You know that. You know that it's possible, but you're not entirely sure if you are going to be able to do it and then like, is it, is it then you just start and then you see what happens or is it then you blink and you realize you're halfway done? Like what, how do you cross the threshold?
1: Very slowly. You do it through work. You know, in my case, I just work, just do it through the work. And, uh, and there are, there are moments of sometimes of genuine despair where I really can't see my way through. And, um, and, you know, you cultivate in you, I mean, I'll tell you the things that I found are helpful. Yeah. You cultivate a humility uh, that teaches you that the work isn't about you. The work mm. isn't in service of whatever it is that you're excited about, your ego, your the ideas in the book, or some mission or some message it's not. The work doesn't exist in order to serve your purposes. It's actually the other way around. You are here in service. You are um, lending everything. And when it comes to literature, it wants everything. You cannot hold anything back. And and you have to put that, you lay that down at its feet. And you serve it. And um, so that helps. Getting yourself out of the equation, for me, really helps in moments of despair. Um, the other thing that helps is um, is, a, is an acquaintanceship with, um, uh, with your own practice, with what works for you. You know, and every one of us is different here, you know. Um, so for, in my case, for example, uh, the morning hours are my, my, my best hours. Uh, I like to work very early in the morning, and it's also very good for me not to work, because um, when I get into trouble, I work twelve-hour days, and it's, that's not really good. So, so I work the mornings, and then I take the afternoons off, do something else, go for a walk, look at a painting. Um, I have to sort of manage these things somehow, make sure I sleep well, and then I make sure I see certain kinds of people. You know, I have a very small uh, I know a lot of people, but I have very few friends. Uh, I think maybe like most of us. It's hard to have many, many friends. But but even amongst my friends, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, some friends demand certain things from us that we can give readily in certain states. And, and when we are compromised like that, in those moments I feel very compromised because I'm totally... I'm involved in a kind of battle that's very difficult, that is invisible, and it's very difficult to explain to anybody who doesn't know it. So I just make sure that I frequent the people that fill me with gentleness and a sense of of ease and intellectual enlivenment, you know. Similarly with works of art and so on, I might avoid certain things and go for other things. Music suddenly becomes much more important during those times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And thankfully in London, where I lived most of the year, I could go to a concert hall three times a week because they're cheap by comparison to new york so uh, so so you know just sort of learning whatever it is, you know whatever it is you know um um you know baking you know so i don't know it could be anything right that works for you and uh, and those things work for me and make me um make me you know patient with it, but really, there is no other way through except to go through it <laughs> to literally work your way through it interesting that happens on the, the on the other side of it of that difficulty is that suddenly you feel the book is kind of is on your show is on your back in a sense that it's it's pushing you forward things become a little bit less difficult more and then actually they become so effortless at certain moments that you you even have to think was it really that difficult? You start to doubt whether it was that <laughs> difficult. Anyway, and then when you finish it, and now this is the stage where I'm at. Where I'm sort of looking at the proofs. You really see what you've done, and it's wonderful. It's it's uh, look. I'll tell you something. I am I am I've been very fortunate with my work. You know, um, it 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 got published, and that in itself is not something to take for granted. It it got read um you know widely and and by very thoughtful people and i have encounters like this like the one i'm having with you now which fills my heart and what you said about it and um you know so i'm i'm all of that i really take to heart and it's been you know um but but i must admit the central joy like the real the real joy the real the real joy is that part when you get to the end of the book and you really can see that you're not crazy, <laughs> that you've done it. And, you, and also what you were imagining in the beginning, you weren't mad. It actually is. It, it's happened. A form of it has happened. Not exactly, but a form of it has happened. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That is, I mean, what a gem. And that's so, I think I, I just appreciate your openness with all of that because it's, it's so clear and you can feel it and, 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 and. Uh, appreciate it in the words that you write. You traditionally consider yourself a novelist. You've written a couple of novels, and you also have written um, a memoir. And I've been thinking a lot about, especially today where, you know, even in the United States, books are being banned from schools. Yes. As someone who enjoyed reading and enjoyed writing so much growing up, but had a different kind of appreciation because you knew the power of a book because books were often banned when you were trying to read them or trying to enjoy them. How did your relationship with what a book even feels like in your hands contribute? How did that contribute to your motivation to write your family story, your story, name the names that you did, even as I mean, it doesn't feel like the war is over. So it just in, and when you published The Return in 2017, it definitely wasn't. So how did how did your relationship with books and reading in that way allow you the courage or gift you the courage that you had to do what you did?
1: I mean books were always um well, first of all, I wasn't really um that great of a reader when I was young. I was I read poetry. I I didn't read novels unless I had to for school. I really only fell in love with novels when I was nineteen, the year, the month that I lost my father. Um and um and I remember that very clearly. I remember being uh, in the arms of a novel, feeling that. Mm. I remember really being so gripped and um, that it became a host, you know, uh, a very hospitable host and really deepened from there on. Before then, I only really read poetry. I thought that's really the that's really literature. <laughs> 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 that's what I thought.
0: But also, why poetry? Because I think that that's... So we had a very it,
1: good library at home. Okay. We had a very good library and my parents... Um, somehow poetry was a very important thing. Uh, and, and I had an uncle who was a very good poet. So there were these dinner parties that usually in the end, someone will recite yeah. a poem. No, you're, you're shaking your head. I you loved know? the dinner parties. Yeah, I and, loved the images. And I was head. the kid, sounds like you were too. I was the kid in them where whenever a poem was read, I was secretly th- thinking, please don't stop. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, so I recognized that. Um, but, you know, and... Just to back uh, back up a little bit, um, I was also very early on acquainted with the fact that books are complicated, dangerous things. So I remember, for example, when uh, um, Gaddafi sent um, the Libyan dictator sent these. It's actually quite an interesting moment. It's a complicated moment because he sent these young. Um, Military um, uh, kids, really, who nobody's, it's not their idea, right? He sent them to cleanse the bookshops (laughs) and gave them a list of all these books. So basically, everything, everything was collected and put in the square and lit up. And I'm always, I'm always, I don't know, I'm always fascinated by those boys who did it. I was thinking like, because I remember there was a kind of thrill, you know. I mean, there is a thrill when you're young to burning things, I suppose, <laughs> you know, there's, right? But also, it was clear, in other words, that they weren't uh, ideologically uh, driven. You know, they were just sort of following a thing. And it was probably a day uh, where they didn't have to do something else that was less pleasant or, you know, they were out and about. So, mm-hmm. um, But this idea that you would send kids or, or young conscripts to bookshops and take books and burn them. And then later on, when we lived in Cairo, my father's favorite bookshop, when we would go there, um, uh, the man all, always, the, the, the bookseller knew my father. And so there would be this ritual, we would arrive. And you know, I was a kid, right? I just like enjoyed being with my dad, but I'm sort of, you know, they're talking and I go around and look at books and, and, um, and they'd have a coffee. And then there will always come a moment when the bookseller would lean over to my dad and say, shall we go upstairs now? And my dad would say, yes, yes, let's do that. And we'll go out of the bookstore to the next door building, go upstairs to this flat, very high ceilings in, in the old part in Cairo, um, very high ceilings. And you can imagine every room is covered in books. And these were the banned books. These were the books that the censor wouldn't allow. And you'd be surprised what's there. I mean, it's the sort of books you and I would have on our shelf. You know, it's it's not very clear why why is Milan Kondera censored by the Egyptian censor? I had no idea. Well, not all of his books, just that one. (laughs) Testaments Betrayed, right? Which is a book that, I don't know. I I have no idea. There's no logic um, or not an apparent logic. I remember, for example, when... um, Abdul Rahman Munif published uh, his trilogy, what is it called, Days of Salt, I think, um, about um, Saudi Arabia, that moment, Saudi Arabian novelist, very interesting novel about that moment when modernity enters the country and the conflict between traditions and, and, and modernity. And it was banned in Saudi Arabia. And it was, I don't remember if it was banned in Egypt. But I remember the thrill of it when it was published and we're going to the bookshop and getting the copy and my father disappearing in his study for three days. You couldn't speak to him because he had to read this trilogy. He he loved uh, Munif. Um, And then I also remember being sent to the bookshop to get something else and then finding these limousines that turn up from the Saudi embassy and these uh, uh, Saudi Officials, diplomats, I don't know, dressed in traditional robe, walking out at night with sunglasses on, and going to the bookshop and walking out with bags and bags of that book in black plastic bags, which is what people bought vodka in Egypt, sort So to hide the right. So so these were all very early experiences that that brought it home to me very vividly that books are actually quite interesting, complicated, possibly dangerous things. And, uh, and then when my father disappeared, his library became a very important place for me. You know, I would go and read his books and read the books that were in the library. And and then, um, um, you know, really fell in love with, with novels. Um, I remember very much like from 19... 19- to 25, those were the years of very hot reading. I read a lot of books, and there were um, I lived in central London, uh, in the West End. National Gallery is free to enter, and so I, I would go there and look at paintings. And on the way there, Charing Cross Road has all of these old uh, then now a lot of them closed. Um, secondhand bookshops where you could buy a book for a pound or, so I bought a lot of books and read a lot in that time. Um, and I, I discovered, I, I discovered things I didn't know, but the most exciting moments is when I found myself, you know, in these books, you know? Um, yeah.
0: Well, actually a side, a little side reflection. So having had that experience Do you have any thoughts on the fact that books are being banned in the United States now or attempting to be banned?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think, first of all, as soon as a book is banned um, or people are enlivened by the need to ban books, that's always a, a, a warning sign. That's always, that's a symptom of an ill moment, Right. Um, and so that's I think very important to 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 register that and then know how to engage with it and why is it happening and and uh, um, it's also a moment so it's a system a, a symptom of of a of a bad time but it's also a moment where somebody uh, wants to impose um, their authority. Um, all attacks against books are usually to do with power, almost always. Um, and um, and I've always found that interesting, you know, because on some level you think, why is a dictatorship, when we're talking about the Libyan example, why is a dictatorship concerned about books? I mean, so what? I mean, how many people read? And It's not like, you know, I haven't seen people walk out on the street and, And say, you know, I've just read Dostoevsky. Now I want a revolution, you know. I mean, right? So it's it's almost a mystery to me. Like, why would you want to put writers in prison? Like, why, you know? So they're not that dangerous. Um, But actually they are deeply dangerous. Yeah. Because one of the things that a novel does is that it suspends authority. It's Mm. not very clear Mm -hmm. where the power is. Right. Novels are usually about contested spaces. Um, they're enlivened by contradictions. Right. We are drawn closer to characters, men and women who are running against their own hearts, right. who don't know what the right answer is. And if you want to impose an authoritative narrative, whether as a dictator or as some, you know, a dogmatic extreme bureaucrat in some city in America wanting to ban certain sc- books in schools and so on, then you are actually wanting to impose a narrative and say, this is the, this is the way, you know, it also, I think signals a very deep, um, a very deep uh, uh, anxiety, almost, I want to say a trauma, but almost an an anxiety on the behalf of the person who wants to, to ban it. There's a very good, there's a really interesting writer um, called Adam Phillips. He writes these very thoughtful essays that are, they are thinking on the page, you know. Um, and he has this essay, I think it's called On on Self-Criticism. Um, and your readers can read it. I think it's on in, in the London Review of Books. I don't think it's behind a paywall. Uh, it's a very interesting essay. And in it, he thinks about that voice that many of us, maybe all of us, have. I certainly do. Um, the voice in your head that says, oh, you're not, you know, you're not good enough. Or that when you drop something, you say, oh, you idiot. <laughs> that voice, right? And, and he, he sort of thinks, he takes that voice seriously, really thinks about it, you know? And one of the things that he says, he says, well, it's very clear that that voice exists in the aftermath of some terrible event, <laughs> right? That they're sort of traumatized by something, right? Mm-hmm. And Then he says, imagine meeting that voice in a party. I mean, the first thing you might think is that they're very boring, Right? They're very anxious, you know? And, and I, th- I, I think of that when we think about banning books because I think it is, whoever is doing the banning right. exists in the aftermath of some terrible event, right. you know?
0: Well, that's also very empathetic of you to think, like to consider, to give context, to make the person, the banner, uh, a human who might have their own anxieties or need for control.
1: Of course, they're not just a human, they're my brother my sister this is what I meant by the complexity of this inheritance we have you know you know that uh, Virginia Woolf is my sister but Gaddafi is also my brother and Hitler is my brother and Bach is my brother I mean that's a very complicated situation very complicated Um, and not in some abstract sense I say the word brother or sister
0: how do you say it in a very
1: direct sense I mean, they are literally my my fellow human beings. You know, we belong to the same to the same uh, to the same culture, tradition, roots. Um, all of us. I really do believe that um, our equality to me isn't an abstraction; it's a lived experience. You know,
0: that's an interesting reflection because I what came to mind when when you said that was that. My original question had been about like how did you basically how did you decide that you were going to write this book with with everyone's names and in the truth in yeah. the truthiest truth that you could, yeah. and all I heard as you were saying that is it's all loving like you wrote this book lovingly, you were you were speaking to like. People who agreed with you, people who didn't agree with you, people who harmed you, people who oppressed you, people who—and it's still coming from like almost a loving kinship.
1: It's very interesting you should say that. It's very interesting because the word love is—is is, um, see, I've learned that if you in—in in my first book, in the Country of Men, which is a novel set in Tripoli, at a very interesting moment in the late 1970s, because that's the moment when the Qaddafi regime. Having exhausted the goodwill that it benefited from in the beginning, starts to do what all dictatorships need to do, which is find new enemies, rejuvenate uh, it, it, the the passions of its followers. And I've always wanted to set a novel at that moment uh, because it was genuinely a moment of national psychosis, you know. And um, and but then there's a scene, there's a moment based on historical. Uh, event where more than one sadly where people were called to come to the stadium in this case it was a newly built basketball stadium you know state of the art thing Um, and uh, they come into the stadium and then they don't know why so they're called to come to the stadium they think there's a celebration so they come men, women, children they all go there and the stadium is all uh, the gates are all locked once they're in, and then it very quickly becomes clear what's going to happen. Summary trial of a dissident who's pulled weeping onto the court and then is hung from the, the basketball um, thing. and um, And that's a moment of national psychosis because everybody's traumatized by it and nobody wants to talk about it. No one talks about it in Libya. Nobody talks about it. They talk about it only within family settings. No one has ever written about it. And I remember when I wrote that scene in in, in the novel in the Country of Men. I remember the day. Uh, I remember uh, we were living um, in a place that there was there was a garden and there was a little shed in the garden and I would write in the gar in the shed, and it was a sunny day. And after I finished, I went up to the bathroom to take a shower. And the shower was beside a window. The sun is streaming in, late afternoon sun streaming in. The water was hot. And yet I was shivering under the water because I realized I had crossed the line. I had written something that no one has written before, uh, about before. And this sort of thing can get me into a lot of trouble. And, um, and you know, the, you know, that those moments of, of knowing how to navigate these, these moments of, of what is, you know, allowed and what's not allowed. But the question of love is very important because as I wrote that scene, which I remember it was charred into my mind from seeing it um, on television. Because not only are those people are in the stadium, but it was televised. Um and uh, Gaddafi regime was very clever in using the television as a way to enter the house. Um, and so I, I um, and I don't mean here to focus on the Qaddafi regime. I'm talking more about how power works, right? But also, um, when I wrote that scene, I had to be the executor and the executed. I had to be the noose, you know? I had to find a way to if this is if you want to write it properly i'm not saying i did i made a, an attempt at it but that was the intention um and so love here is the the kind of love that i think we 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 are implying you know the very active serious complicated love you know where you want to l- not the love of approval of course but the love that wants to really understand and um with the return this was um you know, on a very personal uh, l- level because the return focuses on events that, um, that, that are um, very intimate, obviously, to my life. Uh, it's when I returned to Libya after 33 years of being away and uh, trying to find answers to the question that had dominated my life um, uh, since I was 19. Which is what happened to my father? Where is he? where his where might his remains be? What were the final hours like, et cetera, All these questions. Um, and also, but also to re to engage, you know, with the places and the people that I love. There was a lot of pleasure and joy and um, and and I found with it, uh, I learned that um, first of all, this is not a book. <laughs> this is not a book, anyone would want to write because no one wants to go to those places i don't you know uh want to go to those places where i think about what were the where what might have happened to my father what were the final moments like and i mean that's not something i want to i want to think about um it's certainly not on the page um and preferably not at all if i can help it um but it was a book that had a, a deep paradox in it. There was that, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be there. But the book itself was uh, a gift, you know. Um, and I really think your books are your fate, you know. Um, uh, um, maybe just like your podcasts are your fate. Your paintings are your fate. That, that um, you know, that, that you... You can't choose them really. I mean, you could choose not—I could choose not to write it—but I don't feel like I have this sort of array of books, and I can know which one do I want to do next. It's not like that. I feel it really does capture me, and um, and but this book was had such broad appetites. You know, I really do think a book. Uh, comes with its character, you know, it comes with its appetites, with its likes and dislikes. Sometimes the Mm. book wants you to do things that you are not keen on, you know, or you want to do things that the book is not keen on, you know, and it stiffens up a bit like, a bit like when you turn up to a party and you didn't read the note about what you were supposed to be wearing. (laughs) And you, you know, it's, you know, the book too kind of stiffens up. So, So it has
0: its own soul.
1: Yes, it does. And its own voice. And color and register and tempo and you know, and and this book had just it was just this incredible horse you know. So I used to ride horses when I was young. It was a big part of my life. And I remember the moment when you get on a horse that's better than you, <laughs> that it's got just it's just better than you, and you need to figure out a way how to handle it. Right, you know, right. And this felt like that. It had. It just always was egging me on. It always, you know, it was like we want to have these different registers. We're gonna have the the journalistic register, and then we're gonna have the vernacular one, and then we're gonna do the landscape thing, and then we're gonna do the philosophical one, reflections, intimate, family, friendship, love, all of it. We're gonna do all of it. Politics. We're gonna do all of it. And uh, and I was like, okay, all right, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep up, you know. And so, so really, as well as being so difficult to be um, in those spaces it was taking me I felt so um, lucky and I felt like I was really handed this incredible gift um, of a book that was was so um, rich and structurally so complex the way it handled time you know it's a book that perambulates the present moment is very short it's only about a week of it you can write it in 12 pages if you want but every step forward conjures up the past and so it's always perambulating in this way and structurally architecturally was so rich so intricate um that um it attended to all of the things that I liked. I headed to poetry and philosophy, to architecture, to to um to the social gesture of who said what and a bit of humor and a bit of tragedy and you know it had all of those things. So so I didn't really intend to write it. I went to visit. I didn't want to write anything. I didn't want to commit to anything. I kept a diary. David Remnick at the New Yorker magazine, wanted me to write about it and wanted uh, my wife, Diana, who's a photographer, to photograph. And he thought this would make a beautiful piece. And we both thought, maybe. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And I, David knows me and he's a, he's a wonderful editor, but he, he's a marvelous editor. And proof of that is that he really knows what will facilitate what will make it easier for his writer, you know. And in this case, he knew me and he knew that letting me go without any commitment was exactly the right thing to do. And, uh, and I came back um, um, and didn't write for two, three months. Um, didn't write a word. Writing is a, is a, is a thing I do every day. It's part of, it's part of my life, you know. And, and, um, and it was totally gone. I didn't even write emails or anything. I didn't write at all. I, just, I didn't write. And I thought, you know, I thought, fine, because I've never had a kind of careerist commitment to writing. I just want to be true. You know, I want to do the thing that is true. I don't want to write a book that didn't need to be written just to whatever it is, you know, to to satisfy my career. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'll do something. Else. I'll go back to architecture. Maybe I'll, you know, I've always fancied sculpture and I'll have a go at that. And a baker, I'm a very good baker, you know, maybe I'll open a bakery. You know, I really was thinking those things. And, and, um, and I went to visit a dear friend of mine who lives in, in the Piedmont, in North, uh, North Italy. Uh, and this guy is very, I don't know how to describe it. He has a, he really knows how to enjoy life. You know, he really, He's just, you know, he's just food and nature and just had a, so I was kind of, I enjoyed the sort of lushness of his company, you know, there was, and, uh, and maybe in that setting, I thought, well, let me look at the, I brought my diaries with me, my Libyan diaries with me, and I thought, let me read them. I hadn't read them for these three months. So I thought, this is very good. I've sort of almost forgotten about them. I thought I'll read them as though they belong to someone else and see what happens, and I, I didn't go beyond the, the, the second sentence. And I just lifted those two sentences and I put them on a page. And I thought, if this were to be the beginning of a book, um, what would be the third sentence? And I wasn't thinking of writing a memoir or a novel, or I wasn't thinking of those sentences. So books to me are are structures, you know. They and so I thought I'll I'll just start okay, I'll write the next sentence and the next sentence. And before I knew it, I had, you know, I had a, I had about 5,000 words. And the 5,000 words, I hadn't arrived to Libya in them. <laughs> I was still in the airport. So I sent them to David and he said, great, give me another 5,000. Because the piece was supposed to be around 5,000. So I wrote another 5,000 and it ends when I literally land in Libya. <laughs> Not much else happens. And that was the piece that was published in the New Yorker. He then wanted, he then, he then told me, you realize this is a book. And he said this at the same time as my dear and much missed um, friend and publisher, Susan Camel, who passed away in, in you know 2019 and, and broke my and many other writers' hearts. She's a very special editor, a very special woman. And mm. and she read it on a flight. Um, I'd sent it to her same time I sent it to David. She read it on the on a flight. Ironically, I was in New York and she was flying from New York to London for work. And she landed in London and called me and she said, this is a book. And, you know, so those two people who are very, uh, you know, Susan particularly, very close to my, my work in a very deep way, somebody I trust, I that, you know, confirmed the instinct that I had. First person that told me it was a book was myself. The second person was Diana, who's a great reader. Diana is a very important part of the story. I would love to hear more about her. Because Diana, in a way, Diana is a very, um, well, she's a marvelous artist and very uh, seriously committed to her work in ways that I've learned a lot from.
0: Can I ask when you guys met? Like, how old were you when you guys met? I was twenty.
1: 2627 I think when we met. Okay. Yeah. Uh and uh and so we have been married for 24 years. And um and she's her approach to work is so rigorous and thoughtful and deep that I've learned so much from her and she and I sort of I don't know we haven't figured out why this is the case but we sort of We become pregnant around the same time and we (laughs) deliver around the same time, you know? (laughs) So we have these projects that extend for a long period of time. And for some reason, they're always like, now her book, she's printing her book in the summer. And my book is going to go to the press around that same time. That's amazing. These are books that hers, she's been working on for six years, mine. For for three or four years, and Do so you, I
0: mean, how has your how does your energy intertwine in the process of both of you creating? Like, are you feeding off of each other? Does her being in her work mode energize you, and vice versa?
1: Yes, we work separately. She has a studio, and I have my studio. And so we 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 when we're working, we're not in the same space. But uh, our conversations we have a lot of conversations about one another's work. I'm the first person that sees her work, she's the first person that sees my work. And we read, we attend to one another's work very seriously and very closely. And um, and and we have the sort of conversations that you can't have really with anyone else. You know, moments in the evening when there's a very particular detail that you're working with or you're wondering about and you want to hear yourself, just hearing yourself describe it, you know, is useful. Uh, but also receiving... You know, really sensitive insights, um, and also I think in a wider sense, you know, not just on the work, but in our lives as artists that share a life together. You know, that our engagement with other works of art, with how to live, how to how to how to be present, you know, uh, in the world. Th- those things I think are also very rich for me, at least for both of us, but with. The return, Diana beat me to it. You know, Diana started a very important work where she was um, thinking about the evidence of my father's disappearance. She's never met him, but she has all of his evidence around her. Myself, of course, my family. The house, his things, his books, uh, his uh, his uh, uh, you know um, pocket squares or ties or and and she is um, acquainted with all of that and uh, and most vividly and importantly his absence. And so you would think, well, there's nothing to photograph here. Literally, there is nothing to photograph because he's not here. But then she produces this photographic work that is incredible and it's very evocative and sensitive. And what's powerful about it is that it's inspired, starts with my father, but then goes beyond him. And she goes and photographs uh, places in in Rome. Rome is the one European city where uh, quite a number of Libyan dissidents were assassinated. And she would find the nearest tree to where someone was assassinated, and she would photograph it in this very haunting way because the tree was there then. It was a witness. And then she would go to places in Libya where political prisoners were held, and she would photograph those. She really went right into the dark spaces and tried to illuminate them with her camera and produced this wonderful (coughs) project called Evidence toured around museums around the world and um and is held in many collections um and this book called evidence and she did all of that before i even started writing the return wow right so i could see from her example she was sort of lighting a torch in front of me and saying not deliberately i mean she was doing it because it was a work that she was she wanted to make i don't mean that she was making it for me not at all she was making it out of her own independence but but she showed me as an artist, as a fellow artist, um, and as my wife, um, of, of how one might engage with the unspeakable, you know, because this experience of what happened to my father is unspeakable. You know, I, I, it's, 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 it's impossible to describe. And, um, and she f- showed me how it's exactly the impossibility that's interesting. It's exactly the things that we don't know, right? And the return delves into these spaces of darkness, the spaces where there is no information, and tries to fill them with the imagination, with remembrance. Yeah.
0: I love the picture that you just painted of Diana, and I'm so grateful that you got to share the way that she held that light for you because... I can feel it. Even in the brief mentions that you wrote about her, you mentioned her, her presence is very strong throughout the entire thing. Hi friends, a little introduction. I just want to share a quick good deed opportunity with you. As many of you know, my family has been running the ICU foundation since I was in middle school. At ICU, we work to alleviate local homelessness and support community members in need by creating and distributing winter care packages, family food bags, grocery gift cards, and running our local community pantry. One family food bag costs about $35 and you can sponsor one or more bags by contributing to ICU. Our Venmo is at ISY Foundation, which is also our Instagram if you wanna support there. Our PayPal is contact at isyfoundation.org, which isyfoundation.org is also our website, so you can check out more of our work. And thank you so much for taking the time to listen and support. Now, back to Hisham.
1: You know what I told you about uh, about the connection between evidence and the return? I don't think I've ever said that before in in this exact way, you know? Uh, I've alluded to it, but not like this before, so. Well,
0: we're honored that you shared that with us. It's a beautiful reflection, and I can't wait for Diana to hear it. So, the unspeakable. Mm. I wanna talk about this because this is what's really been on my heart lately. There's the unspeakable, like the unfathomable, like what our brains physically cannot comprehend and I think that that's really what like has been disturbing me. And um, my dad who grew up in Benghazi and was a witness to the hangings on the university campus who I interviewed during rep. And when I told him that I still had a responsibility to fact check some things that he had said and he got emotional what do you mean? Like, this is what's happened to us. He actually had me call uh, Amr Hussein Shafi, who I think you mentioned in the book with, not by name, but potentially the, the person who was the cooker, the chef at yes. Abu Sleem. I
1: thought so. Yeah. I thought so listening I, to uh, When I
0: read uh, it, I was like, oh my gosh, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And I remember when I interviewed him, he had this also like this life and this vigor of Of and this confidence in in sharing and speaking on the unspeakable. And something that you wrote as well was that to be Libyan is to have many questions. And I think that as someone who is of like the younger Libyan generation or the Libyan American generation, I've only been to Libya twice. And I was very young. And there's this like weird thing of, you know, bicultural identity. I'm not, I'm not all the way American. I'm not all the way Libyan. I'm, there's something in between, but you piece together that identity with like the stories of your family. But something that consistently comes up too is that it's taken me several years to extract the stories of my family. And the reason the return shook me so much specifically is because, so in our family, my grandmother, my grandmother's brother, my great uncle's brother, Halunajmi, has been missing for decades as well. And um, he was a pilot for Gaddafi. And there's pieces to the puzzle of like he had witnessed or overheard or saw an interaction um, or an arms exchange that had happened. And he was young. And um, and then one day he left on a job and he never came home. And so it I've heard like traces of that story and then traces of the 1986 bombing and the aftermath of that. And I've seen, but more than hearing the traces of the story themselves, I've seen what that trauma looks like and what that hope looks like in my own family members in my grandmother in who like every conversation that I have, I piece together a little bit until it's too much for her. If I feel like it's too much for her, or she'll tell me straight up, like I can't talk about this anymore. And my grandfather, who has, who also went through traumatic instances of, I just found out because I had, I had dreamt of a little girl, um, who had told me what her name, she told me her name. I see a lot of my family in my dreams. So I kind of also, have been piecing together and I noticed that you also have had those experiences, Um, And it was because of that, that I ended up asking my family about it. And I had learned that my grandfather had a little sister who had died in the caves during the Italian occupation when they were hiding from them. And no, not even my grandmother had known about this. And it's like my grandfather, he doesn't speak anymore. He does. He's very silent. And it's like we have I have this like burning thing inside of me of like, I'm trying to document, I'm trying to piece together the stories of our families so that we can also just better understand who we are and who we come from and what is like, what is our culture? What is our identity? And I had brought it up. We had a really, our first really big family reunion this last summer. And I had, um, I was interviewing all of the elders and every time I was asking them questions, it was, it came back to like the resistance or um, what they did when they got to America to to like continue fighting for liberation, and my aunt came and whispered in my ear and said, "Try to get them to talk about something that like isn't political, like just about themselves." And so I had I attempted, and my uncle grabbed a mic. He came up and he said, "Well, the reason that we can't do that is because like our entire lives have been this. Like their entire life has been this fight from the moment." that they came into the world until now like that's what has been on their mind and it's like it's it's really difficult to articulate but I can feel it in my heart this like when your identity is shaped by an oppressor or by politics or it's been stripped away and it's it's kind of like banning books but it's like banning identity it's banning like your story your own stories until they're constantly replaced with like the fight and you so beautifully asked questions and shared feelings that have happened inside of your body of what it's like to search for answers about what happened to your father. And I sobbed a lot of, while reading because I felt like I was hearing my own family members' words about their own missing brother or their own their own um, difficulty with like until now, still having hope that maybe he's still alive and i just i don't know if it's like i don't have to try to philosophize if it's a cultural thing or for whatever it is but it's just like how do we how do we begin to digest the unspeakable so that we can still document it so that the stories don't get lost
1: i mean obviously this this book um you know would mean something much more intimate i think to a libyan who has suffered some of these events but you know what's been striking about it is that i've had a lot of people i've had things happen with this book that have been really quite interesting
0: yeah i've
1: had you know a lot of you know i've had people in korea my you know the the korean publisher my korean publisher wanted me to to write an introduction to the korean edition for the korean reader mm-hmm. and i said i said to, to her why and she said because it's obvious and uh, and like a fool i said what is obvious <laughs> she said she said well lots of people here have disappeared you know so you know um there were together and now they're not because the country has been divided and um i've had very similar things from from argentina obviously because of the disappeared in argentina lebanon another country with so there there's been those responses which you could somehow now in hindsight you can say well that's kind of predictable yeah but then i've had things like um when i'd be signing books at the end of an event there will always be, with the return, there will always be a hand, you know, two or three, um, usually men, uh, middle aged men like me, sort of in their 40s, 50s, 60s, in that range, who would leave me a letter, uh, a sealed envelope with no return address, and they'll say, please read it later. In every event, I'd have one or two, maximum three would do this. And I'd take the train back to wherever I'm going and I'll open the the envelope and it'll be a letter for someone telling me about his relationship with his father. Yeah. You know? And a lot of these letters belong to men who have lived with their fathers, who did not suffer exile. Um, But there was something about the loss of one's father, regardless how commonplace the circumstances are, or extraordinary as these are, there was something shared, and those that meant so much to me. Because I think one of the things that I am, one of the things that I'm careful about, yeah, is I don't want the the kind of the strangeness and idiosyncrasy of this of the details of the experience to be either done away with right or to dominate you know i want them to connect to the deeper reservoir you know of human mm-hmm. emotions you know to do with you know uh, you know uh, to, to do with memory to do how with how the past is in the present
0: yeah and how do right.
1: we you know how do we move on from here given everything that has happened right
0: what does moving on look like to you? What does that mean? Because when, when I ask my dad, yeah. e- like every single time I say, well, like, what did you do? How do you, like, how do you process this? How do you process what you got? I move on, I move on, I move on. And I don't think I understand what that means. Because I don't think it's possible to just move on and let go. It's always in you.
1: Yes. I mean, I, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I mean, in the sense that I think... I think my commitment to the present is very serious, yeah, you okay. know I, I um, you know, I think this moment is is to be treated with great care and, and presence of mind, yeah. you know um, I am very interested in everything that has happened. I am not interested in it uh, uh, dominating me. You know, Mm. for the longest time, my father was right at the center and I would be hovering around him, searching for him. My whole life was organized. Now I can see my whole life was organized around this. And I thought, and I write about this in The Return, you know, that I thought that's what genuine fidelity is. And it's not. I found out it's not. That, um, well, first of all, fidelity has to be exploded. Exploded. You have to look at it in a much broader sense. Fidelity to who and to what. Um, I spent half my life looking my, looking for my father. I'm still looking for his remains now. But I'm not as haunted or dominated by the task anymore. Um, and something extraordinary has happened. I'm now at the center. Mm. And my father is on the margins and he is very um, pleased with that. Yeah. And what's very strange right. is he is more vivid to me yep. than he was when I had put him in the middle. And that has just g- given uh, everything that I do, you know, everything that I do, more, more power, more, more, more force. And so I think if you are like us, if you come from places that are very complicated and you grow up in a house that has really been exposed to the flames of of the troubles of of these places. And you have people around you whom you love more than anything, but who are deeply affected by this. And you've grown with the inheritance of their grief. And you want to put it to right because you're young and you have energy and you think you can remake the world and you should definitely have a go at it, you know? Mm -hmm. If you have grown up in that situation, it could, it stands the risk of cramping your the muscles of your imagination towards the past. And it makes you forget that the present is actually what's really incredible. It's the fact that all of this has happened and we are here. Yeah. That is really um, magical, you yeah. know? And so, so I really think this turning towards... The I describe in the book this reoccurring dream I used to have, where I would appear to myself as deformed, and my my face is my head is turned, and my face faces backwards. It's very vivid, obviously, dream. But you know, this turning your face forward and and facing mm-hmm. forward is not a betrayal of the past. Mm-hmm. It's actually it dignifies everything that has happened.
0: Yeah, I had this overwhelming feeling as soon as you said that which when you said, and your father likes it better this way, it's because I feel maybe it's also because you're finally giving him this space to show up as your father rather Mm. than the roles reversed. And so when you put yourself at the center, he gets to be the father presence that like, that is no longer victimized and is actually like fully the hero.
1: Yes, absolutely. But also even one step after that it becomes creative you know my father used to have a really uh, it's a really lovely idea about what a conversation is right because he spotted when i was young when i was about 12 i was obsessed with debate <laughs> right and i was this annoying kid that would debate the hell out of everything right and i was very good at it i would beat men adults and i was very very good at it and my father could see my pleasure the pleasure that i took in it yeah he both admired my abilities but he also could see the pleasure and he didn't like it and he told me something he said listen when you when you put someone in a corner uh, and i said yeah knowing, like, <laughs> like. so when you put him in the corner he says back up mm. give them give them a graceful way to come out And uh, told me about the French root of the word debate is to beat someone with something, right? (laughs) Wow. Right? So he says, So he says, what if debate isn't actually you beating me with your idea? What if conversation is as follows? You put forward your proposition, and I'll put forward mine. I will defend my proposition and argue for it for a bit, not too long, and you do the same. And then after that, We turn them around and you adopt mine and I adopt yours, right? And then once we're done with that, together, collaboratively, so it's not a competition, we go off and find a third proposition that neither of us knew and a fourth one and a fifth one. So conversation as a generative, you know.
0: This is a very, very good take on debate practice in general.
1: But also, I think, I think of it also in terms of what we're talking about, of how do we relate to the past? Yeah. You, you, you and I now have come up with several propositions of how to relate to it. But maybe we can find in ourselves the energy and the creative will to go and search for other possibilities of how to relate to the past. That, In other words, how to relate to the past is never fixed. It's always open for investigation.
0: Right. So what is your relationship with our complicated inheritance now?
1: The trouble with answering that question is is defining the word our, because it depends in what context you see it, because I think something else you and I share, and thankfully it's becoming more and more commonplace. We are engaged with different cultures. We're touched by different languages. And, um, Certainly, when I was young, that was represented a kind of, it it seemed to me often as though it were a problem, as though it were something I needed to resolve. Like, you know, I'm a Libyan writing in English. Right. Uh, That's an issue, you know, and I need to resolve it. It's a problem. Um, uh, Or that I live here. And all, all of these various contradictions that happen with people who move and live elsewhere. But now, for me, actually, I don't feel that these things exist in contradiction at all. I think it's actually very interesting that I am Libyan and I write in English. Yeah. It's not that it's more interesting than me writing in German or in Arabic, or, but it's just interesting. So fostering a kind of curiosity towards uh, these things that isn't a narcissistic curiosity to do with, oh, it's me, uh, how unique. No, but a genuine cu- curiosity towards it is something that I'm interested in. So, our for me right now is a very, is a very rich place. you know Our for me is Al Mutanabbi and Abu Al Ala Al Ma'ari and Dante and Shakespeare and Virginia Woolf and Proust and. Um, so on and so on and so on, you know, Tayyip so, Saleh. And so, so many hours become, an, it, it's, it's expanded. Um, and is um, also, of course, in a very specific sense, um, uh, Libyan. Uh, but also, you know, I've lived in London for the majority of my life, you know. I'm, I'm now 53 and I've lived the last 36 years of my life in London. And I have a very deep, passionate relationship with that city. Not always easy, you know. But um, so that's our too for me. Yeah, it's also mine. And yeah, so so um, so I I've, I I um, I don't want to give you a sense that I am somehow this uh, person who's at ease with all of these contradictions. But I think more often than not. I'm curious and grateful those are the two those are the two most consistent sort of things you know. I think it was Spinoza. He has this idea about if I'm not mistaken, I think it was him who has it or if it wasn't, I attribute it to him. Spinoza is one of the few philosophers in my view who wrote, wrote very well. You know sentences are pleasing to read um, schopenhauer for me is 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 a wonderful writer. Um, but very few philosophers, you know, Plato, of course, but very few philosophers write in a way that you can enjoy it as literature, you know. And um, uh, I hope I'm not offending philosophers, but Spinoza had this idea that you measure your intelligence not by, at least the way I remember it, not by how many things you know or how quick you are to figure out the answer, but your intelligence is the health and vitality of your curiosity, you know, the more you want to know, right? So so I, that to me, for me, is what I try to foster towards all of this.
0: Yeah. I mean, because I, I think curiosity allows you to be a witness and an observer to the human experience that you're having rather than a victim to it.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And I feel like from that place, we see so much more clearly. Ugh, thank you so much. Okay, so I have two more things. One mm-hmm. is... Um, can you tell us anything about your upcoming book?
1: I would love to tell you about my upcoming book. Um, it's a book that's been um, with me for a long time. I thought since 2012, because immediately after the events in Libya and in Egypt and Tunisia and Bahrain, I th- thought I want to write a want to write a book about friendship
0: mm. and
1: about these three friends, three Libyan friends in London who start at the same place and end up in a completely different place. And I just didn't know how to do it. And I felt it was too soon Mm,
0: to write mm -hmm. about
1: those events. Um, And uh, a couple of years ago, the the British Museum invited Diana and I to do an exhibition. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to, they wanted, they collect Diana's work, so they wanted her to to bring uh, sketchbooks for evidence for the book Evidence. And they wanted me to use the collection to do a display around the return. I'd never been asked to do this by a museum wow. before. And so I went into my archive to find what sketches, images that I notes from the time that I was working on, wow. on the return. And I found an envelope uh, on the back of the envelope from 2003 when Diane and I lived in Paris. And on the back of the envelope, I'd written three sentences. About a book that I one day want to write. No, and it's this book that I've just no. finished. No, so I thought I had the idea in 2012, but I think for a very long time I wanted to write a book about male friendship in particular.
0: We love that. That's yeah. one of my favorite so, topics so to. So it's, call, to. it's
1: called My Friends.
0: The concept of male friendships is something that we talk about all the time now, and I think that yeah. it, it, we need more. Um, we need more people talking about it and more stories around it. And when does that come out?
1: Comes out in January.
0: Wow. Can't wait. Uh, Okay. And so and the, the way that we like to wrap up is just kind of a fill in the blank. So this statement, if you really knew me, you would know. And you can do one, two, or three things.
1: I mean, the fun thing is that I'm such a good cook.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I love that you keep bringing that up, and it's just like somebody want. Like, does anybody want to invest in this in uh, this bakery? No,
1: no, I don't want anybody. I don't want to do it for for work, but I'm just really a good cook.
0: What's your go-to? I'm just. I
1: mean, it's really embarrassing, but I really think I'm a really great cook.
0: Why is that embarrassing? <laughs> I love it's, it
1: because it's it's uh, it's well. First of all, it cannot be objective, right? So, <laughs> so but I, I enjoy, it's something I really enjoy, and I love cooking for. What uh, is
0: your favorite thing pe- to make people for I people? People I
1: love. And, you know, I love, I love a very long dinner party, you know, where it just takes, you know, there's like six courses. I love that sort of stuff. Um, and I think about it when, and when, when, when we invite uh, friends or family and, and I, I, part of my brain the whole afternoon is designing the meal. And I go to the market and, uh, and I t- find, I'm, I'm a market cook. Is the best way to describe it. So you're
0: your mother's son.
1: I look at yeah, exactly. I look at what's fresh and what's uh, what's what I feel like, and I and I I'm improvising all the time. I never cook from books. I've been taught by very good cooks. My mother's family are just amazing, and certain friends who are like this friend I mentioned in Italy, who are just very good cooks, and and so I and I I love an evening together in the kitchen with friends to me is, is, is something I enjoy. So that's something you would know about me if I, um, what else? But um, you have to
0: give me like one meal, like what's Diana's favorite uh, meal that you make?
1: Ah, uh, well, um, it changes because, um, it depends. I'm not very good at repeating things, but, um, well, the other day I made Sharbalibi and Diana really likes that. And I, I basically nail it. Classic. <laughs> no humidity. See, this is why it's embarrassing. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. If um, you're going to, if, I, I make I make pasta like nobody else makes pasta,
0: like from scratch, obviously the
1: whole thing. Yeah, or not from scratch, whatever you like, you know. Um, um,
0: what do you make when you, for you for yourself when you're sad, like your comfort food?
1: No, if I'm sad that I want to cheer myself by cooking, yeah. I want to cook for others. Mm. I don't. Um, I um, the thing that secretly horrifies me.
0: Yeah, tell me. This
1: is something else yeah, you need to know, you really about know. Yeah, if you really know Hisham, you would know. Is that when you go out with say say somebody's cooked something amazing? Yeah, and you're all sitting to eat, and someone eats it, and there's absolutely not nothing changes about them. <laughs> that to me really disturbs me. I cannot trust them on some level. I think something is wrong. <laughs> that's that's something that have
0: you me. ever called anybody out for doing that
1: no but i'm just in secretly in you know, secret outrage is what i do <laughs> <laughs> i'm very good at that
0: <laughs> oh, i love it do you have one more if you really knew me for us those are really good ones
1: when i was a university student and i, I had no money mm-hmm. and i fell in love with music i discovered that i could sneak in to the second half of a concert for free. And so what I did, I had a a clandestine education in classical music. I would go to the bar because always in the bar, there's, you can have a glass of water for free. And you you have to put on a shirt, you know, to try to look a bit smart. And put, a, a, put, a, put a, a book, a very slim volume in your, in your, books are very important here. And you have your glass of water, you're reading your book, and you're totally immersed in this book. No one can tear you away from this book. They ring the bell a third time. Everybody's going up. You wait till most of them have gone up. And then you tail behind them, reading the book. Nobody likes to disturb a reading man, you know. Just read the book. And then you just sleepwalk into the auditorium. And you stand there, and you're reading the book. You can't let it, you can't look away from it. And then the lights come down and you sort of wake up uh, and you look around and there's always an empty seat. <laughs> you know, the musicians love it because nobody likes an empty seat. And if you go to chamber music, which is what I did, you're not getting the second half of an opera or something. You're getting a full piece of music. Yeah. And because you can't choose, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> I had a very wide musical education and I just followed my instincts and I owe a huge debt to... Public libraries. Yes. Because, yes. You know, you could rent Same. CDs out and so yeah. on. And so I just taught myself, you know, uh, uh followed my passion.
0: That's but so it was good.
1: clandestine. Yeah. I, I did that for, for a good three years, or two, three times a week. I did that.
0: Wow. Maybe it's a Libyan thing because I'm really sad that my younger brother just had to leave because he is a wizard of being able to do exactly that. That is.
1: Now I'm not so good at it, but. Well, good then.
0: He, ha- he has taught us some good tips and I love that that's how you got your musical education. Hisham, you've been so generous with your time, with your stories, with your truth. I know I started on gratitude, but I want to end with such sincere gratitude. Thank you I'm so, much so much. grateful Thank for this you. conversation.
1: Thanks, and it's so nice to meet you.
0: It's great to meet you. Thank you. This storytelling session is not over just yet. The day after our conversation, Hisham reached out saying he had been thinking about a question that I had asked, and he had reflected on it and wanted to share more of his thoughts. And before we get into that, here's a little reminder to listen to our Webby-nominated investigative podcast, Rep, a story about the stories we tell. We dig into media representation, our relationship with stories, truth, and objectivity, And you can continue to support At Your Service's work by following us on Instagram, at AYS, or checking out our work and transcripts to these podcast episodes at AYS.media. Okay, back to Hisham. Noor. Hisham. (laughs) Alhamdulillah. I feel really clear today, and I feel very grateful today. How are you?
1: Oh, that's that's very good. That's very good. Um, I'm I'm i all right. I'm well. Yeah, I'm well. I enjoyed meeting you and Adam and Muhammad and Sarah and uh, you guys. Obviously, are very 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 uh, special. Um, so it was a it was a pleasure. Um, I just wanted to. Um, I wanted to add something because I have been. um, Something you said yesterday remained with me, and I was thinking about this. There was, um, uh, I forget how you framed the question, but something like, How does one move on? And, uh, right?
0: Yeah, I was Um, referring to uh, my dad talking about moving on, and I was trying to, I was asking, What does that even look like? What does that really mean?
1: Yes. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was really, you know, it, it remained with me that question sort of echoing, you know, cause I know I answered it, but there was more I wanted to say, and it had to do with the fact that moving on, um, must involve, I think, a gesture of expansion, uh, by which I mean, taking the specific facts of whatever event we're talking about here and uh, connecting it to a much larger landscape of events and ideas and so on. And, for example, I felt that it was always, there was a moment in my campaigning for for the whereabouts of my father in the early days when I was young and consumed by the pain and urgency of it, I was focused primarily on my father. And that was fine. But it was, it had the feeling of a kind of, of something growing in the wrong direction, you know.
0: Um, I remember you actually writing about that. And that's why when you reflected and you said, now you're at the center of the story and not your father. And I felt like I, I, I felt like I love that because you give him the opportunity to show up as a father, because I remember you saying in the middle of the campaign, the more that you were like publicly looking for him, the further away he felt.
1: Yes, yes, that, that's analogous. I mean, that's connected to what I'm what I'm thinking about now. But it's not exactly the same thing because okay. within the campaign, um, the moment things shifted yeah. uh, was was when we connected what was happening to my father to so many other people, and we looked at structural causes. Right. So it became less of a family story and more of something much broader that was looking at at. Uh, causality in a much larger sense and I felt that a bit um, with listening to your podcast It reminded me of that Mm. because um, you know you're obviously you do so well in looking at sort of cliched responses To uh, Libyans, you know, uh, like the film that you mentioned, and so on, things that sort of ease the ground for uh, for for one country to go and bomb another country. Mm -hmm. And I think you you do that very well. That's a very important conversation. Um, And then you do extremely well in in exposing the the nature of uh the 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 damage and the pain um generationally you know on uh different generations in your family um who all i felt spoke very eloquently about it and so you, you do all of that so well i felt and then at the at the final episode when you are speaking at harvard and this unlikely event happens where there's somebody in the audience who happened to be there yeah. at the location of the um you know it's a very powerful moment but then it's there that i felt that things suddenly stopped evol- evolving because then there it stops being it 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 remains to be just a story about, or not just, but mainly a story about a family, mm-hmm. and about, uh, you know, about mm-hmm. the relationship, the relationship between this family's place of origin and their adopted country, the United States, mm-hmm. and and it just it it, it remains there, and I, and I think I mean that's all fantastic, but yesterday when we parted ways and I had your question ringing in my ear about how does one move forward. I thought of that. I started thinking of your episodes and I thought one form... Well, the short answer is I don't know how one moves forward. But in other words, I don't have a recipe for it. But one possibility would be to connect those events, what happened in 86 and what happened to your your family, to a much broader... Um, set of causes that have allowed, that continue to our day to day, you know, that have allowed the United States to do that, not just in Libya and so many other mm-hmm. places, and very recently, you know, under the Obama years with the drone attacks um, in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. An argument could be made that actually, what happened in Libya in 1986 mm-hmm. was. Um, the beginning, it wasn't the end, it was the beginning of a trend that has become not less acceptable, but far more acceptable. Because many, many more people uh, have died uh, in, in, in ways that yeah. your relatives have died. Yeah. And so I felt, I felt you know, uh, this is basically my worry about the desire to find closure
0: because the desire
1: to find closure as well intentioned as it is because nobody wants to live in suffering right if closure means the end of suffering but oftentimes i feel the desire to find closure trumps the 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 actual issues and therefore it inverts the story and makes it about us yeah. as individuals rather than about the broader picture um and i think that i think that a it's not an easy thing to do, what I'm saying. But I think a heroic victory here would be to take the specific pain that has been dealt us and use it as an instrument to expose the wider structural maladies that have made that possible. You know, mm. I think about that a lot these days in America, you know, particularly with the question of police violence and how you know, there's a real desire, I think, in America to explain these things away by, uh, only by problems of racism, which, of course, are endemic and exist. But I think there is a much more uncomfortable truth about the country to do with the fact that it has, together with all of that, is marvelous about it. Yeah. It has this brutal ability to be incredibly violent and to be able to kill innocent people uh, at home and abroad. Yeah. Uh, much more abroad, of course.
0: Mm. In
1: ways that are uh, uh, careless and should really shock everybody, right? Yeah. So so I I, I felt that, mm, you know, those were some of the thoughts that were going in my head as we parted ways that I was walking at night yeah. um, to meet my friends. And this <laughs> was on my mind that I was thinking I must speak to 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 Noor because you know uh, these conversations happen in an instant and yet they remain no, don't they? They remain sort of working on us in some ways and unfolding. So yeah, that's why I wanted to speak to you.
0: Well first of all, I'm honored that you were still thinking about the conversation afterwards because I absolutely was as well. And I just, and I think I still am processing all of it. And it means so much to me that you would, that you shared what you just shared because it, 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 I completely agree with you. And it's interesting because I'm so eager now for you to listen to the rest of the series because Um, that was, that's essential. So the first and the last episodes are the personal and then the middle, the rest of the series is taking that zoomed out effect of like understanding how we got here structurally. And so the story of my family, it was only meant to be a very short example in an episode I called America's Greatest Export, which is this theory that America's Greatest Export is her story or American exceptionalism. And so we, we break that down. I mean, this, the series is a story about the stories we tell. And so to me, like something I think about a lot is to, in order to digest these structures or these cycles that continue, I, I feel like stories are how we can understand them. And that's why I think reading your work is so important to someone like me, because you did that so beautifully with like I had never learned so much about Libyan history and Libyan culture until I read the I until I read your work and also understanding it's 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 when the work compels you to ask what is the role that I'm playing in all of this and I think that that is like I I know it's it's a really big task and an ongoing task to analyze the structures at play and sometimes it can feel so overwhelming because it's like, well, what can I actually do about it? But the reality is, there's always a role that we are playing in this. And I feel like reframing our stories, or retelling, or analyzing, and reinterrogating our stories is like mm. my entry point. It's how I want to. It's how I want to do that. And it's interesting because um, I, I, I after the Harvard talk, um, we didn't include this, but. There was a woman who stood up and she was, um, I believe, from, yeah, she was from Tibet. And she was, she, like, had shared that she wasn't even meant to be at the event. And she was so emotional. And she felt like there was this anger that she had inside of her. And she had, she asked this question of, like, but how do we even begin to tell these stories if we have so much anger inside of us? and. To me, it was like this, it's like going through this healing process of being able to tell your story from a reflective place to really understand and analyze and almost uh, regain authority of the pen to write your story. Because a lot of, we are talking about a people who, like, the reason your book is so radical is because, like, we never hear this story from your point of view. I mean, like, whenever, you often hear the stories told from the oppressor. I mean, that's why we were talking about the banning of books in America and especially when it comes to something like critical race theory, like we are trying to control who gets to tell it. And you recognize the power of like, even in the word, even in the book, even in the story, it's bigger than you and it doesn't belong to you. And I feel like that is maybe like the weapon of choice in, I don't want to say destabilizing structures, but creating new paths. Because I feel like that to me is like when I think of moving on, maybe it isn't like trying to fit our footsteps in the footsteps of the past, but rather like continuously pave a new one and then like bring people along the way until we're able to, I guess, create the structure that feels more true to us, that feels more healing, that truly is of service. And that's kind of how I've been thinking about it, and I, I I love so much that you you're bringing this up because that was that was what we spent investigating the last couple of years. But my entry point ended up becoming this personal story because I realized the pattern, which was that there the Back to the Future episode had come out, then this this attack had happened, like this political attack had happened, and then it changed the way people thought. And so throughout the, um, we call it the three P's in rep. So it was politics, pop culture, and public opinion. And we would, we kind of analyze that dynamic. And it's, some, it's, it's essentially like a tool that you can use now when you're confused about why you feel a type of way about a story, because there are always these cycles at play. And it's in understanding the stories that were being presented that I feel like we begin to almost discredit the structures that give them so much authority to begin with
1: yeah and i think starting with the personal is very is very powerful to do that really it's a very good choice it's a it's um you know and 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 to do it the way that you're saying you know where you then you lead it into something much broader i think that's 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 very powerful also right now i think particularly because there's this sense of a, like a fragmented narrative, right? Yeah. There isn't one story that we all share. We're all listening to something, you know, at a different time. Uh, we don't all watch the same thing at the same time. Yeah. Yep. There is no meeting places where we gather and congregate and exchange,
0: yeah.
1: uh, you know, uh, ideas. And so, so it's, it's very important. There
0: was the the breakthrough that I had, I'll share this with you. It's, it was such an interesting point in the journey because when I started rep, I had had all 10 episodes planned out and I knew what it was going to be and all of this stuff. Mm. And then of course it took a turn, it took its own turn because I came across all of my great uncle's archive and I was like, wait, this, there's a bigger story. There's a bigger starting point. And what happens if we start with the personal and we work our way out? And so, um, There was an episode, it's the fourth episode, it's called Shikata Ganai, which is Japanese, it it translates, it's Japanese and it translates to, it cannot be helped. And um, a friend of mine who's a musician, he is also Japanese American. And he, when he heard about my project, he was like, you should talk to, you need to talk to um, internment camp survivors, Japanese internment camp survivors. And I was like, huh, why is that? You know, originally the the project is supposed to be about like Muslims and Arabs and representation because that's like the angle that I know and and what I needed to interrogate for myself. And um, he had mentioned this and I had had it on my heart as an intention. And towards the end, this one woman who was actually there with her twin sister, she she looked at me and she just said, you know, actually, I've always um, empathized and related to like to Muslim Americans actually. And whenever like I I marched with them too and um, I was like, I was so taken aback and I was like, why is that? And she said, because like, as soon as we heard President Trump saying certain, verbalizing certain rhetoric, it sounded familiar to us. And I knew what that meant for our community. And so I immediately related. And it was like, her finally sharing these personal stories for the first time in this way, the zoomed out picture, it was like at the very end of the interview, I understood why they needed to be a part of this process. And it was just constantly like this zoom out of of we are not the only ones. Like we are never the only ones in our stories. And that's, it's an interesting thing because after Rep came out, I had so many people reach out about their own family members who had died in bombings. And it's so chilling because I, because... It's like I they're not numbers and that's the thing that was so haunting it, it was that like there is no such thing as collateral damage people are not numbers and they have descendants and we are the descendants who get to who get to witness them and share their stories and that's how I feel like we are able to actually process and digest the structures of power, because sometimes those structures are so big that our brains can't fully comprehend them. Sometimes the evil is so passionate and so strong and it's, it's confusing. It's so confusing. And I think, especially when it's being done by people who look like you who have similar names to you, it's, it's really hard to actually understand or fathom it. And it isn't until the personal details are, Um, presented where you're just like this is the truth and and every like no truth can be ignored and we can't continue ignoring this
1: yeah yeah yeah. wonderful well um i'm very glad we 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 reconnected and I'm, gonna, I'm going to listen to the episodes that you mentioned uh, when if I get some time. I
0: would love to hear uh, what you think after. If you have the capacity to listen to it, it would mean so much to me because your perspective, like I, I, I really do seek to do that work. And if you have any feedback or any, anything comes up for you, like, please share that with me because I only want to get better at doing this.
1: I will I will and it's that's that's very clear and you're so good at it, and you've got this incredible um format that works so well and you have you know i'm sure many 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 fans and listeners, and so you're you're very well placed to inspire others and uh, inform them and so that's just so so exciting and and yes now um we will remain in touch. I'm
0: sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the goal is always to be of service. So if there's any way we can be of service, please let us know. And like, and I, I, I can't tell you enough how grateful I am that you would even think to reach out, to share a reflection about the work that I've put out. It really means the world.
1: Thank you, Noor. Thank you so much. Be well. Have a lovely time. Is it sunny there,
0: like here? It absolutely is. We're still in the city because we're recording a couple of more episodes. But um, I'm actually ah, okay. about to go to the new museum with some friends because I've just had this itch, and I'm hoping to make it to the Frick this week to to go see the Forge. And I just. I can't Wonderful. wait to go Wonderful. and sit in front of the painting and, and ponder yeah. on the questions that you presented.
1: Let me know when you see us. If I you will. see us, we get a I chance. I absolutely will. Okay. <laughs> All and right, say hello to have a great
0: rest you. of your day. Thank you. Bye, Marah so Salaam. Bye, bye. Podcast Noor is an AYS production. Our producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bahid Fraser extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Hisham Matar. And make sure you check out his novels and his memoir, The Return. As always, at your service.